people out in the book room, um, but we'll have to start. We'll have one microphone over here in this group of people and another microphone here. So we have 40 questions. And if it takes me a minute to kind of spell out the question and you to get two minutes to answer, we're already over the time limit we're given. So we won't be able to get to all the questions. So just try to keep the answers as short and concise as you can. And uh, we'll see how far we get. Some I'll ask directly. Other ones I'll just ask for a quick answer from maybe, maybe all of you. By the way, this is Dr. Kelvin and we haven't introduced him yet. Hello. I'll get introduced tomorrow, I guess. All right, we'll start, start with Dr. Salazar. When you spoke of the active obedience of Christ, what law was he fulfilling? The mosaic, the moral, or a republication of the covenant of works? Is it on? It's red. Is it on? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on this as well. But my understanding is, is that Christ fulfills the whole law and the prophet. So he fulfills everything uh, in his active and his passive obedience. So I, I know the question is his active obedience, um, which is obviously going to focus on you could say the moral law, but even in the moral, or excuse me, even in his act of obedience, he fulfills the civil and the ceremonial law, although, of course, his great fulfillment of the ceremonial law is in his death. Um, the other thing I'll say about that is the, because the active and passive obedience of Christ cannot be separated, but are together as one unified work. Um, it's, I don't think it's appropriate to kind of try to parse it out too much uh, beyond that. Okay. Brother Hall, I think this question pertains to your, your talk. As we have been listening about the gospel, especially this morning, we hardly heard anything about the resurrection. How can this be justified in light of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4? For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Is it, is it on? Um. Yes, um, the, actually the resurrection of Jesus was one of the six themes uh, that I uh, tried to articulate for the early church's preaching. Uh, the resurrection of Christ is mentioned in Acts 2, it's mentioned in Acts 3, it's mentioned in Acts 4, it's mentioned in Acts 5, uh, certainly in Acts 13. Uh, so the resurrection of, of Jesus was uh, a hallmark of the early preaching of the gospel of grace. All right, thank you. I'll just give you all to just give one little thought to this question. I think it's a good question, but just think about it and we'll pass the microphone down. What has been the helpful to you in your quest to treasure or love the chair? We heard that example this morning of, of treasuring Christ. We all know the importance of the means of grace in this, but what has helped you personally to persevere in them wholeheartedly when your soul felt dry? We'll start with Dr. Beeky, just one little thought of how you've been most helped in, in dry seasons and, and uh, loving Christ. Well, I know what I'm supposed to say, um, but in reality, I think the, the spiritual discipline that has helped me the most is, um, has been reading the Puritans all my life and just having them feed my soul with the things of Jesus. Books like Christ Our Mediator by Thomas Goodwin, I can't tell you what that book has done for me. Or Christ, by the same author, Christ's Beautiful Heart in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. Um, 
In terms of the particular doctrine that has been most special to me in the last years of my life, in, in terms of uh, staying, trying, well, hopefully staying zealous for the Lord, uh, I seem to meditate the most on the doctrine of Christ's intercession, his constant intercession for me at the right hand of the Father in every situation I find myself is uh, just incredibly comforting. The thing I come back to uh, over and over is what John's, John Owen said in his Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded, where he says that the experience of the grace of God in our life comes to us like our sense experience, meaning in the everyday, ordinary things of life, and connecting that with the biblical truth that we see and we experience in our lives, and that it's through tracing his providential hand in that and applying the Word of God to our hearts. I just think, and I just, so I look back on my life, short life, um, and uh, <laughs> short life, and um, and, and, and I look at this, this, this can't be anything but the providential hand of God and His goodness to me over and over and over and over. And so actually I have a little prayer book that I keep. I just write little things down and I put in the prayer book and I'll take it out and I'll just rehearse the things that God has done in His goodness over and over and over. I think um, one thing that has been um, powerful in, in my life has been the Scriptures. It's kind of an obvious answer, but specifically the memorization of Scripture, uh, such that when there are time, have been times of challenge or darkness or dryness, um, meditation upon the Scripture that has been memorized uh, has been for me uh, a tangible reminder that uh, the, the Word is still there. It's always there. It's been hidden inside of me. Um, and have, I have, uh, have found great encouragement and strength uh, from that. Um, also, I, I think in particular, meditating on two particular biblical scenes, both the, the Garden of Gethsemane and then Christ on the cross, and thinking about what the Blessed Son did and experienced and accomplished uh, the horrors of it um, out of love for me. Um, so then even in times of, of darkness, that's, that's bright light. For me, in the, in the Christian life, something that's really been a, a great encouragement to me has been uh, just that of reading biographies, standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, and seeing and learning how other men have uh, persevered in the faith in the midst of trials and tribulations. And I've made it a practice every December to preach a, a biographical sketch of, of someone's life that's impacted me through that calendar year to be a, a help to the church. And then the, the doctrine, I think, um, in, especially in recent years, it's been a great encouragement to me, has been really the, the doctrine of God's providence in helping me see how God orders our steps. So whether we're in seasons of blessing or seasons of trial and difficulty, we can always trust in, in the reality that God is there. He's with us. He's leading us. He's guiding us. And so this has been a great encouragement to me. For me, the Apostle Paul has his words in 2 Corinthians 5 have been a great help where it says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. So I think meditation upon the constraining compelling, melting influences of the divine love of God manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ has done more than anything to uh, warm a cold heart. After all, the means of grace, as one of our Reformed Fathers said, 
are just buckets that we put down into the well and with which we pull out Christ. And so those means of grace bring us to Him. And so reflecting on the love of Christ, which constrains, compels us, has been especially helpful. To continue to uh, be a pastor for um, many decades and generations, the, the verse that has kept me on that track is our Lord's words, if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the scriptural answer I'll give to your question, uh, Dr. Kallerman, but, but the, the practical answer is don't overthink it. Don't think too much. We really don't deserve uh, all of the things we'd like, and there are many, many men. This panel is, is, is a great testimony of that who have gone before us, uh, and anytime you think you've got it uh, difficult and rough, uh, there are historic exemplars who've had it far more difficult uh, than we, and our Lord gives us grace, and He renews us, and being a pastor in the life of a local church is still a joy, uh, even with the hardships and challenges. I'd say uh, three things, uh, rhythms of piety, uh, enjoying God's creation, and evangelism. Uh, the first, that, that rhythm of waking up uh, every morning, going down and sitting in my favorite chair, uh, opening the window... Uh, because growing up in Northern California, we always had our windows open. And it doesn't always work in South Carolina because it gets really hot, even in the mornings. Mm. But I still open the window, turn up the AC, and uh, listen to the crickets. And I, I read prayer books and uh, read through the, the ESV, uh, sorry, Joel, uh, study, uh, the ESV Reader's Bible. And, uh, and then I have a Cambridge ESV Bible, sorry, Joel. Um, where I, <laughs> where I uh, read a, uh, a proverb, uh, a chapter of the Proverbs every day that corresponds with a date, and then spend some, some time in prayer. And it's always such a wonderful blessing to know that uh, every day uh, the God of the universe is ready to meet with me. Family worship. I never feel more like a man and like a leader, and like a true Christian when I'm leading my family in worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Lord's Day worship, recognizing that though I am the pastor of the church, I am under the very means of grace that I am administering. So I hear pastors sometimes t- say things like, well, I take my Sabbath on Monday, or whatever. What are you talking about? We take our Sabbath on the Sabbath, and we enjoy the means of grace just as our people do, even though we are the ones administering them. Secondly, creation um, we undersell the therapeutic, powerful, even spiritual connection that we have with creation. It's God's general revelation. God's given it to us. I mean, how many times did Luther say, if you're stressed out, go for a walk? Um, that's what I do. I, I, I walk and exercise and enjoy God's creation. Thirdly, you will never feel, I never feel, and I believe Christians never feel more alive and their walk with God and more warm to Jesus when, than we are sharing him with others. You feel really authentic as a believer when you're sharing with a non-Christian the truth that you say you believe. It's one thing to preach every week to a bunch of Christians. another thing to be ministering to a, a lesbian on the, you know, uh, on the side of the road, um, like, like I had the privilege of doing just a couple of weeks ago down in Florida. That is energizing. And so I think as particularly as Reformed ministers, I think we can get real caught up in our books and forget that there's a world perishing. That really brings life uh, in the Christian life. Thank you all. It's very, very helpful. And Brother Payne, I'll, I'll uh, stay with you. You have the microphone. What role does the law of God play in the Christian's life? I think you dealt with it maybe this afternoon. Also, when we say the law of God, do we mean only the Ten Commandments or something additional? Well, to answer the first question, um, it just depends on the context and what is being asked of that. I think w- when we say law of God, generally speaking, people think of the moral law, right? But uh, we know that there are, um, uh, you know, various uh, parts of the law, the different functions of the law. 
Um, in terms of the first question, the law is uh, a guide for the Christian, the law is a guide for the Christian life. And uh, in, my, in my seminar uh, breakout session today, I, I give a long quote from Ursinus from his uh, commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, which is fabulous. And it makes the important point that the law in its first or second use, depending on which part of history you're reading, uh, it, it, it shows us our sin and it, it, it shows us our great need for Christ. And then as by God's grace we come to Christ and we are made alive in him, then it's as if Christ hands us the law again, no longer as our enemy, but as our friend. And he hands it to us mm-hmm. with his nail-scarred hands, and he says, this is how you can show your gratitude to me and your love to me. And so the law plays a very important uh, part of, of the Christian life. And those that would say that now that we are no longer under the law, under the condemnation of the law, but now we are under grace, we no longer need the law, well, they're being thoroughgoingly unbiblical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the heart of the law being love, we can never maximize or reach the extent of that absolutely brother bruce um i'll ask you this question why do you think that so many people in our churches can seemingly accept complex doctrines such as the trinity or the hypostatic union but they resist sometimes aggressively the doctrine of election i think at the heart of it what you have is you have um selfishness, you have this tendency as human beings to want to be in control. Um, In the South, where I pastor, um, it's just a common thing to resist the the majesty of God put on display in His sovereignty, but they, they look at it in the sense of, you know, God gives us free will, and God gives us the opportunity to choose. And, and the fact is, I think at the heart of the question is just the idea that when we think about the hypostatic union or we think about other complex doctrines like the Trinity, um, I think in a lot of our churches, the very same people that reject the sovereignty of God will have a great deal of trouble with the Trinity as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is it's just not being preached often. Um, I know that when we think about evangelism, we think about, you know, the Great Commission, and you see that as Christ is giving this Great Commission to his followers, he's, he's commissioning them to go and baptize in the name of the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I mean, right out of the chute, right? So, so it, th- that tells us a lot about the evangelism of the, of the early church. They were evangelizing, they were preaching doctrinal sermons. But I think the problem in a lot of the evangelical churches today is that the, the, the preaching is so shallow that it, it, it really puts on display a, a very shallow, superficial God rather than the God who is revealed to us in Holy Scripture. Hmm. Let's add one thing, very good answer. For me, I think what made election come alive is that what Dr. Beaky preached tonight, when we really recognize how lost we are and what a sinner we are, elections are only hope. Um, anyway, um, Brother McCurley, how can a believer who has sinned against God know experientially both the grief and contrition of repentance and the joy and assurance of reconciliation at one and the same time? not focusing on one at the expense of the other? Yep, that's a good question. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge, in fact, insist that both of these things must coexist, and they continue to coexist throughout the duration of of the Christian life, Uh, the reason being that sin continues to exist within the heart of the Christian. So as the Christian is drawn closer uh, to Christ, and is beholding more and more of the glory of God, they're also consequently coming to see more and more of themselves. And that is going to actually deepen conviction and godly sorrow for sin, which gives way to repentance, 2 Corinthians 7 says. A good example of these two things being held together is perhaps one of the best-known psalms I'm sure you love to sing as I do, 
Psalm 51, where we see David uh, both acknowledging in pretty graphic language his need, his conviction, coupled with his sense of assurance of pardon and forgiveness. I mean, the psalm opens, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. He's about to rend his soul. He's about to come under the crushing load of of expressing his conviction, but he opens the psalm by casting his gaze upon the mercy and the loving kindness of God. He sees that his sin is against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil uh, in thy sight. So his his eyes are still fixed upon uh, the Lord. And then with that flows all of the cries, the heart cries for for the Lord to actually restore joy, to give gladness, uh, to, for the Lord not to hide his sins from him. And so, rather than thinking of these things as being held in tension, they should be held together. Where there is genuine uh, experiential conviction of sin, not surface level, but genuine uh, spirit-wrought conviction, there will be with it the sweetest and the most... Um, wonderful sense of the love of God in pardoning sin. And where there is genuine sense of the reconciling mercies of God, there will always be found along with it astonishment in light of the presence of sin that continues to to be with us. Thank you. Brother Meyer, this is a, a very broad question, but if you could try to address it. It's probably a question that many people may have. Can you explain the difference in the understanding of the covenants between Presbyterians, Reformed Baptists, and those who hold to the New Covenant theology? Are you writing, you're, you're, you're writing your book? Well, per Dr. Beeky's suggestion, I'll say buy my book. And that's... Um, I would say the, the Presbyterians and Reformed are correct, um, and, 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 the, and the others less so. Um, I think that the, if I had to pick one major difference within a, a classical Reformed, certainly Presbyterian understanding of the covenants, there is a supra-historical covenant of grace uh, that stretches from eternity past, it's kind of a strange category, um, from pre-creation eternity to the consummation of the age that is God's one redemptive purpose. Um, and all of the different covenantal administrations are part of that covenant of grace. They are God's dealing with his people at a given point in time through that covenant of grace. Um, something like a Reformed Baptist view would see the uh, everything prior to the new covenant um, Davidic covenant Mosaic, Mosaic covenant, Abrahamic covenant um, and you'll get different people phrasing it differently but as not part of the covenant of grace properly but looking to and anticipating the covenant of grace that is then inaugurated in the new covenant with Christ uh, so um, everything done prior to Christ is pointing to the covenant of grace, but is not properly part of the covenant of grace. Uh, and that would be largely the view of uh, some of the new covenant, progressive covenantalism sorts of uh, things that are out there. There's some minor differences, but um, broadly speaking, I would say that's the, the distinctive of correct covenant theology, is that God has one covenant of grace. Um, Adam and Eve there's evidence in Scripture, believed in the promise of Genesis 3.15, they were as much in the covenant of grace as you or I. would be a, a reformed understanding. Okay, Dr. Vicky, I have two questions. I'll combine them. I think they're somewhat related. <clears throat> uh, struggling soul. How do, how do I forgive myself? I know God has forgiven me, but I struggle to forgive myself for the wrongs I've done. And then, how do I grow in obedience? I keep struggling with the same sin. It seems like I know everything God's word has to say on the matter, but when it comes down to it, and when the opportunity comes, I don't obey. 
I pray again and again for victory, but I also need to obey, not act contrary to what I'm praying for. And that's where the frustrating struggle is. I know I need to read God's word, God's word more, and I need to pray more, but I just don't obey. Yeah, these are actually... Actually, wonderful questions. They show um, tender consciences. And a pastor is blessed who has many tender cases of conscience to deal with in, in the flock. It's a good thing. It's a good thing when you struggle with obedience. Paul did in Romans 7. It's a good thing when you struggle with um, forgiveness and consciousness of forgiveness, also with regard to yourself. Let me say that first. Secondly, when it comes to forgiving yourself, you said you know you're forgiven in Christ. If you're forgiven in Christ, you better believe him before you believe yourself. So... You need to constantly say to yourself, by the grace of God, I am forgiven in Christ. Even as I say that, though, there is a sense in which we remember our sins with a certain gravity that keeps us humble. There are lots of Christians today who say, well, I've forgiven myself because God has forgiven me. And they talk about their past sins almost with a sense of humor and just so flippantly. It just makes me feel very uncomfortable because my past sins, I believe I have forgiven myself because Christ has forgiven me. But there are constant reminders of the magnitude of the grace of my God. And I think that is a good thing. I think even, I'm, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, but I think even in heaven, even in heaven, we won't forget the sins we've committed. But there it will be such pure forgiveness of ourselves that we will only use those memories to glorify God the more. And the more we can be like that on earth, the better. So we remember our sins, but only to glorify God the more. And when we struggle because we can't forgive ourselves, I think sometimes it's, it's still, it's Lord, I believe, helped all my unbeliefs. I think we think we're, we know we're forgiven, but we, we can use those old sins almost as if we're not forgiven. So beware of that. And I think another thing that will help you but to be remember, we glorify God the most when we live in the joy of forgiveness. God does not want his children groveling forever when he has forgiven them with lack of forgiveness for, for themselves. So it's like, it's like being married in, in a really good marriage. You can almost feel guilty in a really good marriage because it's so good it must be wrong. Um, but it's not. It's God's command to really enjoy one another. And it's that way in spiritual life, too. We shouldn't feel guilty enjoying the forgiveness of God by forgiving ourselves as well out of that forgiveness because he wants us to enjoy that forgiveness. Now, in terms of obedience, I think that um, what John just said about rhythms of piety is very, very important. Um, so, and, and keeping no open window space for sin. And if you keep falling to the same sin, you need to get an accountability partner. You need to talk to them about it. Um, when that sin is tempting you, you need to have a means in place whereby you turn and run from it. You know, Ralph Erskine said, fight or flight. If you're strong in an area, you might fight sin directly. If you're weak in that area, you got to flee it. you got to run for it. you got to take away the opportunity. If it's something on the Internet, throw away your Internet. Until you master, uh, you just don't allow yourself to keep going into patterns of sin. Get help from others. Get help in prayer. 
uh, read a couple of books about the dreadfulness of sin, like The Mischief of Sin by Thomas Watson or The Plague of Plagues by Ralph Venning. What in a, how can we sin against our Savior every day and keep doing it? Uh, you know, you just fill yourself with, with that, the, the dastardliness of sin, and, and, and use all these means combined and, and just fight against it. And, and keep praying and keep going to God for forgiveness, but, but don't allow yourself to keep slipping back Develop by the grace of God rhythms of piety. I had a question for everyone, just a quick answer. Um, and there were two, but I'll combine them together. What do you think the greatest threat spiritually to our country, to the church, is at the present time? Brother Payne, we'll just quickly go around with the greatest threat that's imposing itself upon us right now uh, the sexual revolution and the social justice critical race theory revolution is uh in, in in my experience in our denomination as well as looking at the wider church it is absolutely destroying churches it's causing great confusion in, in men's ministries and their understanding of what ministry is and is meant to be um the the, the gospel is about what God has done, not about what we are doing and how we are trying to save the world. And uh, we need to recognize, as, as David so helpfully outlined for us today, we need to remember who we are as ministers and be faithful to preach Christ and the unsearchable riches of Christ from the whole counsel of God and not get caught up in the way the devil is trying to distract and to undermine the true gospel in the church. Mm. I think this is a roundabout answer, but I think the biggest threat to the church and to Christianity in our country is the uh, judges syndrome where every man does what is right in his own eyes. I think we have a profound misunderstanding of the priesthood of all believers that is crippling and killing a lot of churches. The authority of the church that Jesus Christ has given to the keys of his kingdom to those who are ordained to lead his church is not playing very well in the United States of America because of our own native cultural ethos, we believe that everyone has equal expertise. Everyone has an equal right to share their ideas uh, digitally or somewhere or another. Uh, and it is, uh, has brought a, a leveling democratism to Christianity, which I don't think is healthy. And that roots itself and, sh and, and rears its head in many different ways. I would say, in a word, we have big man, little God. So underneath a lot of the other things that are happening, um, man is big, God is little, rather than the reverse. And it expresses itself preeminently, I think, in the chaos of worship. And I think that at the heart of so many of the problems in the church is a failure to recognize that worship is the pivotal force in framing the piety of God's people, uh, that every reformation from Hezekiah to Josiah and Asa, the first and second reformations in Europe and so on, had dead center to all of those, the public worship of God. And until the church has a, a large view of the glory and majesty of God and submits itself to the rule of Scripture in terms of how we worship God, uh, we will have an ongoing, unfolding disaster in the days to come. Uh, without question, I believe the greatest threat to the church in America today is the social justice movement, critical race theory, and intersectionality like a tsunami has swept across evangelicalism. And when you have one of the largest, if not the largest, group of Protestants in the world, the Southern Baptist Convention adopting a resolution at the, tw at the 2019 annual meeting to uh, use critical race theory and intersectionality as analytical tools for gospel work and ministry, it is an absolute embarrassment. And unfortunately, you're, you're hearing of identity politics and critical race theory and intersectionality on the evening news and the newspaper, on blog sites every morning. But then the very leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention in, 
in this last annual meeting in June refused to go on record to oppose that and to name it as an official ideology that we would oppose. They would beat around the bush and they would say, well, all ideologies that are opposed to the gospel we oppose. But when questioned on numerous occasions from the microphone, the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention continued to double down and refuse to name publicly critical race theory and intersectionality. So here's the, here's the deal. Soccer moms and, and concerned parents are lining up at community meetings and school board meetings because they are demanding that this not be taught to their children in the local schools while pastors and theologians and scholars are remaining silent. This is the biggest threat we're facing today. Well, I, want, I want to say first that um, I would like to flatter myself and think if I had gone before these men, I would have given some of those answers. Um, so what, I, what I'm saying is not at all um, uh, at variation with them, but um, and maybe it kind of goes along with uh, their concerns. Um, but I would have to say um, that the foremost danger facing the church is distraction. Um, the Lord has told us to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I think that it's easy, with whether it be you know, this issue in, within a congregation or this cultural issue or, or whatever, um, to get distracted from seeking the kingdom and seeking the righteousness of God. Um, now, all these other things can be pursued seeking after those things. That's not to say we have to put on blinders to the culture around us. Um, I'm certainly no advocate of that. Uh, but having had these good answers given already, to have something a little bit unique, um, I think it's to, to be mindful that we're always, um, the, the devil delights for, his, for the church of Christ to be distracted from the gospel mission. Um, and we need always to be aware of that danger. Yeah, I'm going to steal uh, Carl Truman's answer and say that it is the triumph of the self. Um, his latest book that came out with Crossway at the end of 2020 is, I think, probably the best analysis of where we are, how we got here, and how cultural amnesia, the self, the sexual revolution, is at the root of everything that we see expressed in our culture, and you could say even in the church today. Uh, we don't uh, know who we are. We don't know where we came from. And you could say the social justice movement and the sexual revolution and these other things are the tip of the iceberg in which the underbelly is this triumph of the self. So it's a combination of Josh and John and David's answers. But I think I think it's important. I think every Christian should read Carl's book um, and should be able to connect the spiritual realities that he's talking about in that book that are deteriorating in the Western world because it's the deterioration of Christendom in the Western world. Yeah, I, I agree with all the answers. I, I think I would just, I'll do like Stephen Myers, I'll come up with something different. But um, when you first asked the question, I immediately thought of my father talking to me when I was 17 years old and saying the two greatest problems in the church today is one, for believers, prayerlessness, and two, for unbelievers in the church, worldliness. Now, you can put that in a lot of answers given, but um, I find that in terms of as being a pastor, um, the urgency of corporate prayer, private prayer, the difference that prayer made in the Reformers and Puritans' lives, um, that was their strength, that was their, their, their weapon of warfare. And Satan can sleep beside many of our prayers. Uh, we don't take the kingdom of heaven by violence. And when I studied at Westminster Seminary and st read hundreds and hundreds of sermons of the Reformers and Puritans, I was amazed at th their sermons really aren't that different from ours, those of us who are Reformed, but they were men of prayer. They were wrestlers with God. I think that's, that's huge. And then worldliness, 
takes in almost all these things, but uh, the, just the spirit of the world, doing that which is right in your own eyes. All right, I'll try to get one quick question for each of you. So, Brother Myers, you said in passing that we must be careful with the description of hell in the Bible. Can you provide a couple of guidelines and examples of this carefulness? Well, I think that um, an, an example um, would be uh, if uh, when, when Christ describes hell as outer darkness and then also describes it as an unquenchable fire. Um, obviously, in our, in our experience of reality, you can't have fire and darkness simultaneously. Uh, and now, there are ways in which um, perhaps things operate differently um, there. Um, but there, there's also, as there is with uh, you know, a range of biblical imagery, there's you know, there, at points there can be allusion to other uh, Old Testament texts that were making other points. There can be kind of the use of figurative language, um, much as you would have in a um, an apocalyptic vision. So I think we just have to be attentive to the fact that while hell is a real place, uh, sometimes figurative language can potentially be being used to describe the horrors of it, uh, horrors that we are unable to access in any other way than through these figurative descriptions. Um, so I think I don't have a, a hard and fast rule for you know, knowing which column to put any given passage in. Uh, it's more whatever the passage is, looking at it in its context. Um, if the scriptures are speaking to a specific error or speaking to a specific misunderstanding, that can you know, uh, flavor how we take the language um, but, but I do think it's possible to say that there's some figurative language used to speak of hell, and hell is a real place. Um, you can speak of real places with figurative language. All right, thank you, Brother Hall. For what reason does the gospel portrayed in the gospels and acts always seem to mention repentance, but the epistles rarely seem to mention repentance in their presentation of the gospel? That's an assumption question, but I'll let you answer. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I would agree with the premise. <clears throat> I, th I think the um, uh, epistles speak to and, and frequently call for repentance, particularly the Corinthian correspondence. And also, don't let's don't forget the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, uh, speaks uh, much about repentance uh, and the failure to do so among Babylon uh, and the harlot and uh, the Antichrist who resist the Lord. Uh, so, uh, again, for me, I think every epistle has its own particular target, its own particular region and emphases. Uh, we should not expect them to uh, be uh, the same, so they don't always carry the same things. But I think there's, there's ample emphasis on repentance in the epistles, and uh, I, would, I would be hard-pressed uh, to see a, a difference between the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts and the apostolic writing in the epistles on that subject. Brother Salazar, since love is the essence of obedience to God, aren't we in danger of mixing faith and works by including love in the definition of faith? I love the chair. I don't think so. Um, <clears throat> Because you have to ask the question, where did that love come from? Did it come from within yourself? Or was it given to you uh, graciously by God, uh, creating new affections in you by grace? So I don't, I don't think it, it uh, creates any more problem than uh, we say that faith is the instrument. We're just merely talking about what is the essence of what it means uh, to trust something, um, to trust someone. And therefore, it all comes of God. It's all of grace. And God creates that affection within us. I want to comment on that. All right. Maybe I want to ask you the next question, but go ahead. Yeah, I'll skip my question. Um, so... <clears throat> 
Yeah, the forefathers taught that there are three constituent elements in faith, right? Knowledge, assent, and trust. And they did not include love in that. So I think when you talk about loving the chair, yes, when faith is planted in the soul, the seed of love will be planted there as well. And there's a legitimate way of saying, as Sproul did, yeah, I, I, I love the chair. And faith will produce emotion. But we must not let love become a constituent element of what faith is in its essence. Because once you do that, you fall back into the area of, of not just of works, but of, well, do I have enough love to really have real faith? You see, the, 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 the geniusness of faith, the geniusness of Paul's doctrine is that faith is only one object, and that's Jesus Christ. And so that's what gives us our security, our comfort, our assurance that all our faith is in him alone for salvation. Now, faith is never alone in the fruits of it. So the love is absolutely essential. It's an essential element of faith. But there's a danger when we bring love into any constituency form as of the essence of faith. And that's what, um, I mean, I'm not saying that people that are starting to embrace this view today are doing that, but that's where Norm Shepard and the whole division of Westminster, you know, went too far with that, bringing love and, 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 and obedience somehow into the essential essence of faith, and, and we, got, we got in trouble with the pure doctrine justification by faith alone. So let's stay very clear that love is not a constituent element of faith, but it's an inevitable fruit of faith. Does that make sense? Very good. Uh, Brother Bruce, um, since I asked you about election before, I'll, I'll follow that up. It's, it's a good question. How can I know if I'm one of God's elect? Yeah, you can know if you're one of God's elect if you have a broken heart for the sin that you've committed against God. And this brokenness is the result of God drawing you to the state of repentance, to acknowledge that you've trespassed God's holy law. That would be the first evidence. Um, unbelievers, God-haters, love sin. They're enslaved to sin. And when we are um, the elect of God and we are born again, we are freed from this bondage, and we are now uh, slaves of God and slaves of righteousness. So that would be the first part. I think the second part would be that you love God. And so we were once enemies of God uh, in our natural state, but it is through the, the grace of God that we are brought to a place where we actually love God. And then we are commanded to love Him supremely and to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if that sorrow for sin is not there, and that uh, lack of love for God is not present, then that would be, that would be problematic. But he, I would follow up in just with a final word, and it would be this. Anyone who is struggling with whether or not they are the elect of God, you're in a really good place because um, God-haters, people who are outside of the grace of God, people who are not the elect of God, rarely, if ever, truly come to a place of concern for their own soul and wondering if they are the elect of God. So rather than trying to figure out some secret providence and secret aspect of whether or not you are the elect of God, it, you, you would do well to just obey what the Word of God says. And so I would follow up with what Dr. Beakey said in his sermon just a moment ago. Here we are at a Christian conference and if you're here in this very conference and you're struggling with the state of your soul, could it be that God is drawing you to himself? And so just do what the word says, repent and believe the gospel of God. Brother McCurley, did Christ die for our willful sins? If so, can you provide context to Hebrews 10, 26, 27? For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fire indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. 
So the answer is that the Lord Jesus Christ did die for all of the sins of all of his elect people, every believer. Their sins have been atoned for in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, full stop, no exceptions. When you turn to Hebrews 10, and there are similar passages as well, what's being described is not one of the Lord's people. And so we have a description, if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, it's speaking of those who have been brought under the light, who have been brought near to the kingdom, similar to parallel in, in, in chapter 6, I believe, who have enjoyed many privileges and, uh, and have been brought under many different um, blessings and who have repudiated that, who have turned their hearts in belligerence and rejecting uh, all of the light that has, has been given to them. And the word of warning in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 6, elsewhere, is a very serious one. Uh, we're to believe all that God says. So we, we speak often of believing the promises. And when we say that, we, we think of the promised blessings. But we're also to believe the promised curses and the warnings that God gives. And so for the believer, there's an exercise of the soul in laying hold by faith of those warnings, heeding them, and bringing forth fruit uh, unto obedience and the glory of God in them. All right, thank you. Brother Payne, um, you cited an example of a hypothetical dialogue between father, son, and the uh, covenant of redemption. Doesn't this dialogue provide ideas contrary to God's nature? For example, uh, father is not sure how to save, or the son is more ready to save than the father, and the absence of the spirit's part. So would there be a better framework maybe to talk about this hypothetical dialogue that would correspond more with God's nature, including uh, the Spirit's participation? You'll have to ask John Flavel. In all seriousness, I knew this question was coming. (laughs) I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. I I thought about this today, and I thought, you know, someone's going to ask me about this hypothetical dialogue, and the, uh, David put the question in. Thank you, David. My response would be that it is an illustration. It's imaginative. The Puritans were very free with their illustrations. They can be very helpful. They can help us think through things. I think it's important to qualify these kind of things, as I, as I did uh, last night, um, that this isn't the Word of God. Um, and uh, perhaps there is something inappropriate about it, quite frankly. Perhaps there is. Um, I think there's some, some liberality being taken to express that. I've, I've heard, uh, well, first of all, I have great respect for John Flavel. I have great respect for many men um, that I have heard use this uh, over the years. I've probably heard this two or three times in the last 20 years, someone use it, and it's always been very moving to me. And um, so, yeah, I guess I would just say uh, perhaps perhaps it's, um, it's not the most helpful thing, uh, but I personally feel the freedom uh, to be moved by something like this that I know is not the Word of God, uh, and yet can be helpful in thinking through, um, you know, a lot of things are, are, of course, communicated to us through analogy in the Bible. God doesn't have a hand. God, um, God uh, doesn't have eyes. He is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like we do, and yet this language is used. It's expressive. I know it's biblical language. It's God's revelation, and so we use it, but um, so I'll just say it's, it's, it's helpful to me. It administers to my soul. I know it's not the Holy Scriptures. It's an illustration. And uh, if you feel free in your conscience to use it, use it. If not, don't use it. <laughs> okay. Well, last question, Dr. Beeky. Um, 
I appreciate the emphasis of PRTS on the experiential and practical aspects of theology and gospel in particular. I see a great gap between my own theology and my practical godliness, especially in my home. How can I grow in applying the gospel and practical sanctification? How do I take these great truths from my head and into my heart and live them toward my wife and children? Wow, yeah. Um, So Mark Jones and I in our book, A Puritan Theology, that's what the whole book is about. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about 50 different major doctrines that the Puritans capitalize on and took sitting on the shoulders of the Reformers and then applied them to all kinds of aspects of, of daily life. And the last eight chapters of the book deal with how they took that doctrine and brought it into their family, into their marriage, into their conscience, into their prayers. These are all separate chapters. Uh, into cases of conscience in, as they counsel others, into their own zeal, to promote zeal, and uh, they have a lot to teach us. And I would suggest, if you're really serious about this, you read those eight chapters, 51 to 58, in that book, because that will show you how the Puritans did it in all kinds of areas. But basically, what they're doing is they're saying what Robert Burns said, God wants us to take every doctrine of the Bible and turn it into men's business and bosoms. In other words, into your daily life, your work life, and into your own internal soul. And so what you want to do, and under good preaching you'll get that, you want to apply every doctrine. So as a minister, when you sit and prepare your sermon, before you go on your pulpit, you need to ask yourself, how can I make this doctrine alive for God's people in the congregation. What duties does this doctrine require? What warnings does this doctrine present? What comforts does this doctrine give? These are applications, or as the Puritan called them, uses. And that's one reason why I love to read the Puritans, because they bring it home, home, home. Like like Noah Webster, the author of the Webster Dictionary said, he said, when I hear a man preach, I want application, application, application. I want to know how to do it, how to live it, how to think it, how to pray it. And um, reading the Puritans will, will help you a lot in, in that area. And reading the last half of every one of Paul's epistles is really just doing that. How do you apply the doctrine I just taught you in Ephesians 1 through 3? How do you apply it to your family? In, in, in chapter 5. How do you apply it to uh, your own spiritual warfare in chapter 6? So read those last parts of each of Paul's epistles. Read some Puritans. Think it through and ask God for grace to live intentionally what you believe every day and get in those rhythms of piety. And I think the spiritual disciplines will help you. All right. Thank you all very much. It's very edifying and helpful, I think, to those who've heard the answers. Thank you for the questions. Sorry we weren't able to get to all of them. Um, Chris, is there anything we need to know for the morning? Otherwise, we'll close in prayer. Been covered, so what time they need to be here? Nine o'clock. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Our great God, our Father in heaven who runs to meet returning sinners with open arms and embraces them, kisses them, and restores them through the righteousness and work and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. These things have been our consideration over these past hours and days and we are grateful to thee for all the blessings that we receive we're grateful to thee for who thou art so help us now to live help us to put into practice a life of gratitude and of obedience go before us 
and all the challenges that we face, all these concerns that were expressed in our culture and in the church today. Lord, we pray for a fresh outpouring of thy Holy Spirit in revival and reformation. Let thy kingdom come in the works of darkness and the lies and distortions of our age be put to shame. And let thy kingdom come. Graciously forgive every sin we commit in thought, in word, in deed, and cleanse us in the blood of the Lamb. Be with those who are struggling with these very things and are not assured of their own salvation. Bring them this very day, this very night to the peace that passes understanding that is found in our Savior alone. And bless thy people, strengthen us, encourage us, and help us to have great thoughts of thee. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night. The Lord's blessing.